Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. It is 8.08 in the Twin Cities, 55 degrees. Time now for one of my favorite guests, the one and only Professor David Schultz of Hamlin University. How are you, sir? I'm doing very well. How about you this evening? Well, I'm doing, I'm doing great. It's a lot better than the last time we were on two weeks ago That's when, right, when there was a blizzard. <laughs> I could say it was in the middle of the blizzard, wasn't it? It was, yes. I mean, it's just, it's amazing what a difference two weeks can make because it's, uh, that was bad. Yeah, I know. I was going to say even one week because I remember that Sunday, the day after we did the show, my wife and I were snowshoeing um, along the railroad tracks um, in St. Paul and it was, it was, it was good snowshoeing. There's a lot of snow. A lot of snow. All right. And, and thank goodness uh, most of it's gone because we are heading into May this week. So that would be appropriate. We love the snow when it comes sort of at that time of year when we're all kind of anticipating it. That's right. Um, well, we well, don't listen, like snow when we're trying to go watch baseball games like the Twins. There you go. Um, well, listen, I texted you earlier because – and I think you know people do know this, but I'll remind them. Um, not only are you you know a political analyst who's written extensively about politics, but you also are a constitutional law professor. And I have just found this story involving the arrest of the alleged Golden State killer – Absolutely fascinating, and it has been prompting enormous debate and discussion about the methods that were used to capture this individual. Uh, and what happened was after 40 years, a man accused of – I think it's 50 rapes, a dozen killings. They had long ago connected them, and they had been searching for this man, investigating since the 1970s. Horrible, horrible, horrible cases, and – as sort of like a last-ditch Hail Mary, one of the investigators, uh, they had gotten you know a, a very good DNA sample from one of these killings that, that had been well-preserved, and they used that sample to create a fake profile on one of these uh, genealogy mm-hmm. websites, one that is open to the public. You know, in other words, you don't need sign-ins or whatever. This one is just – it's a user-based one and it's, it's out there for anybody to use. So they used a fake one. They created a fake account using the killer's DNA that they had saved from the 1980s, made up a name, put it out there. Bingo. They get a hit, but it's not the killer. It's not a 100% match, but it's enough of a match – that they know the person where the hit has come from is a close or is a relative. And so they go then and begin investigating this relative, looking at that relative's family tree and discover this man who is the right age, lived in the right area, had law enforcement experience, a man called James D'Angelo, a former police officer, and what they do is they begin to monitor him to see if they can get discarded DNA. And we don't know what it was, but it could be you're eating at a restaurant and you take a, a napkin, a, a napkin or, or, you know, you're having a, a beer. Mm-hmm. A, any of those things could be 
seized by somebody just picking up, getting it out of the garbage. They apparently had two samples of discarded DNA. One wasn't good enough. The other one, it was a direct hit with all of those cases. Uh, a remarkable uh, discovery after all these years when they thought this case had gone cold. But a lot of people are are raising questions about this process, even though it resulted in this extraordinary development of this man, alleged the alleged killer, the alleged suspect being captured. What are your thoughts about this? Well, there are, I mean, well, say two things. First, from a law enforcement perspective, I mean, as you just said, it's brilliant investigation, but it raises lots of um, constitutional questions, you know, both in terms of Fourth Amendment warrant requirements. It also raises really, I think, serious questions regarding rights to privacy in terms of what we have. Um, but think about all the different sort of problems that are along the line here that raise interesting questions here. You know, one of them is the fact that, you know, again, we have this public sort of DNA database. Um, to what extent, you know, did the government um, basically bypass the Fourth Amendment warrant requirements by creating this kind of fictitious, you know, you know personality? Um, that's sort of one issue, and I want to come back to that. Um, and then eventually um, we have questions regarding um, did you know you know warrant issues and search issues you know once they've gotten this partial match um, to now trail um, um, this, this individual so so we clearly have um, again privacy issues warrant issues here and let's do some parallels let's say for example uh, you know let's say I'm I'm accused of a crime and I'm and I'm sitting um, in, in jail. Um, if the police want to interrogate me, you know, they obviously first to have arrested me, they have to have had probable cause. Um, once I'm arrested, every one of us knows the Miranda warnings in terms of the right to remain silent, et cetera, et cetera. You know, all, 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 all that um, we have a constitutional framework for. But let's say I'm sitting in jail and the, and the police decide that they, put it, they plant an informant in that jail. And, and they do that for the Which court. happens. Um, what happens, it happens. But if they do, um, they, they, they have to also um, have, they have faced problems in terms of warrant or, investiga- or interrogation because if, if they place an informant in there to try to get me to speak, that's a way of getting around the Miranda warnings. On the other hand, and you'll see the parallel here, if just there's a prisoner sitting in the cell with me and I, I'm stupid enough to open my mouth to that other prisoner, that prisoner can say anything. But, if they, but the police actually puts a person in there for the purposes of tricking me into speaking. That becomes a, a problem where what, the, what I would say to that informant um, would not be admissible. And that's what we've got a parallel here going on also, is to what extent did the police unconstitutionally use deception um, as a way of getting into this database as opposed to what? Having to say, we are going to go get a warrant, um, which is what the Constitution requires. So I think that becomes you know, the, the first problem that, that I see with this. Well, in terms of the site that they use, there are DNA websites, uh, apparently some like 23andMe, mm-hmm. um, that, that have you know millions of users. The one they went to has a smaller database. It's called GED Match. It was created by volunteers. Mm-hmm. This is a, a so it it doesn't have and everything's open. Right. And it says right there in the disclosure, uh, you know, apparently that if you 
go onto this site with DNA, it could be used for other purposes. Mm -hmm. So this was not a closed site the way most of these are, and there are different ways, different settings where you can apparently make it more closed or whatever. But um, that's apparently what they did. Mm -hmm. And it was sort of a last-ditch effort, but it was this, this smaller site that lo and behold had a relative, and I, we don't know how close it is, but I think it's what's interesting to me too is I didn't realize the full extent that if uh, – and, and it can be second cousins. Uh, if you have somebody uh, anywhere in your family tree who has gone on to one of these websites and this GED match, which is the open site, often gets material – from other sites as people try and expand their search because mm-hmm. it uses all different sites. If, if you, if my second cousin has joined this website or any website, a genealogy website, they basically have put my DNA out there too. Yes, they have. And, 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 and now I'm going to bring a different concept in here. When we think about the right to privacy, um, the court has generally sort of said that um, a, a right to privacy will be recognized if we believe that if we have an expectation of privacy in doing something, and two, the society recognize that expectation of privacy. And when it comes to an individual, I think it's it's a it's a interesting question if if Esme herself puts her own DNA out there on one of these public sites. Do you have an expectation of privacy um, that it's not going to be looked at by others? I'm not sure you do, at least the public sites. But now, if if Esme's second cousin, as you said here, puts something out there, should you, as Esme, have an expectation of privacy that that someone's not going to use data from your second cousin to maybe identify you? I would want to say yes, but this is getting to be a more difficult constitutional question now. To what extent can somebody else essentially here almost what effectively waive your constitutional rights? That that be, that that becomes a very troubling question. Right, as I said, the unusual thing about this it was totally open. This is a slightly different situation than, than a case that happened actually. Um, uh, I think it was just. A few weeks ago, in fact, because I, I actually looked into it, but there was a, a horrible murder down in Arizona of a former Minnesota woman, a uh, young woman, Allison Feldman, and it had gone unsolved for a number of years. Mm-hmm. And uh, authorities there in, in the Phoenix area were, were, again, just frantic to solve this, this brutal killing of this young woman. And what they did is they had DNA from the murder scene. And so they – had you know tried to do the direct match and through their databases could not find it. So then I guess you can tweak it. Mm-hmm. So they said, well, let's try and get a partial match. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, they get a partial match. And the partial match is a relative of the murderer, it turns out, who was in prison. Mm-hmm. So if, if the relative hadn't been in prison, they would have been out of luck. But the relative was in prison. And from there, they could kind of look at who could be a very close relative who could have done this crime. And that's how they found the killer. Yep. Yep. No, you're right. I mean, what we're looking at here is as DNA testing gets to be more and more accurate and they need smaller and smaller samples to actually get good matches, um, we're, we're really running a lot of interesting questions here. Think about a few things that have been talked about in the last few years. 
at one point there was the idea of saying that everybody who's arrested um, should have a DNA sample taken from them and put into a DNA, um, some kind of national DNA lab. At one point, because we were concerned about missing children. And I think, I think that's the case in, in many felonies, certainly. It, it is. Right. But also, do you remember a few years ago there was talk about saying that um, because of concerns for you know missing or abducted children, that maybe at birth we should be doing a DNA right. sample. Um, so, so a lot of this stuff can be used, I think, for very important and constructive purposes. Many of us, and I don't know about you, I've actually done you know the, what the National Geographic you know you know you know DNA testing to sort of learn something about my ancestry out there. Um, it becomes part of this larger National Geographic. Um, you know, genome project like that. But as we're doing that, not only can this stuff be be useful for good purposes, but this opens up, I think, the concern for lots of people of Big Brother. You know, how, again, how does this data get used by the government? Um, and especially if we still recognize the fact that we're supposed to have what? Uh, um, a, a warrant requirements for the government to search. And also, it's supposed to be about, I can only wave, come back to what I said before, I should only be able to waive, um, you know, my, my rights and not somebody else's. But in the case of DNA now, with with relatives, it does act as right. is very close enough to act um, for me, effectively waiving somebody else who I'm very close to. Right. And see, my understanding of this GED thirty website is that, uh, or GED match website is that, uh, somebody like you that, that obviously went through the National Geographic database, that what people are doing is they go through the National Geographic uh, database or Ancestry.com or 23andMe, and then they want to expand their search, so they, they go on to mm-hmm. GED Match, mm-hmm. and, and so then that's completely wide open. Right. And, and that's where this all led to. And it, it just, to me, it, it's, it's a riveting situation, and it'll be interesting. Do you think that this will actually come up, you know, the defense attorney will try and get some of this stuff thrown out? He will try, but it's going to be very difficult at this point because, again, go, if, if, it is a, if it is a public website um, where people can put stuff up on there, um, it's, it's going to be hard to argue that... Um, yeah, apparently it's completely public, no passwords, the names right, are out right, there, right. it's all out there. It's going to be hard to argue that there's an expectation of privacy, but not impossible because, again, A, the government used, you know, perhaps used trickery here when it shouldn't have, um, and you might try to argue a warrant's required. And then, again, how they got it was through a relative's DNA. I mean, this might, might be enough, but we're getting in terms of saying that this evidence should be thrown. But we're starting to get into the brave new world now, and literally at this point, of how do we go into sort of a second generation of, let's say, CSI and DNA. Absolutely. All right. Well, listen, so much to talk about in politics as well. Um, let's take a quick break. We'll get into that. But yeah, it is. It's a brave new world kind of stuff there. Uh, it really is. Uh, more with David Schultz after this on News Radio 830 WCCO. It is 826 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy along with Professor David Schultz. So much to talk about. I, I think that DNA conversation that was a good one, and I appreciate your insights into that. I do want to ask you about this huge controversy involving uh, President Trump's uh, nominee for the VA to head the VA withdrawing Dr. Ronnie Jackson after allegations that he was uh, handing out prescription pills, quote, like candy, that he was abusive in the office, that he had a drinking problem. Uh, he withdraws, and now the president uh, demanding that Senator John Tester of uh, Montana 
w- resign, which of course isn't going to happen. But um, this whole thing just seems sort of bizarre to me. It is bizarre, but there's a lot of patterns of, as we've talked about here, of bizarre behavior with the Trump administration. And let's put a couple of different things together here. One of the things that Trump has been complaining about is the slowness in terms of confirmations um, by the Senate of his nominees. And, and there's no question that, that the Democrats are using the same tactic that the Republicans did with Obama to slow down the appointment process. But Trump has also been very, very slow in terms of actually filling appointments. And then one of the criticisms that has really emerged now also is the fact that the White House is not doing a very good job in terms of vetting its own nominees. And this was a case this week where, you know, the Armed Services Committee, which is actually a one of the more bipartisan committees um, in, in the Senate, um, both Republicans and Democrats um, decided to put the nomination on hold and have expressed concern about the fact that that these concerns, and it wasn't just one or two people. I think I remember hearing them say over 20 different accounts, you know, regarding this behavior, and it's and it's regarding a concern that that the Trump administration is is just putting out these nominees without um, you know proper vetting or thinking about it, um, and then so that's another problem. And then the third problem here is is the sense in which Trump sort of even within the first 24 hours, the first day, sends mixed signals where he first says, well, I wouldn't blame him if he withdrew. Then he says, well, maybe he should go through with it. Um, he, he's, he's back and forth in terms of, of whether he's supporting or not nominees. Right. And, and I guess the thing with, with, you know, Dr. Jackson, first of all, there are these allegations and he was the physician um, and you know, Obama gave him personal high marks as well. I guess he's a very personal man. But the VA treats 9 million, I looked up these statistics, 9 million veterans a year mm-hmm. uh, for medical care. It's got a $180 billion budget. There's 400,000 employees. This is an enormous agency, arguably, I would think, you know, one of the most important in our government that, right. to, to take care of our veterans. I mean, nothing is more important. And it certainly um, raises questions about it, – it didn't appear that, the, that, that he had sort of – the administrative background well, that you the, would need. That's the other issue, too. Even beyond his personal behavior issues, the VA medical system is probably the largest health care delivery system in the United States. And you gave the appropriate numbers there in terms of the scope of it. And I think all of us want to say that veterans deserve, you know, the best care. And, and, some, of the, and some of the care is very specialized given their war wounds. Um, and you're us. You're absolutely correct here. I mean, he, he may have been, let's say at his best, a nice person, a good doctor, but certainly no one sees within that background there anybody who has the, the skills to oversee this significantly large bureaucracy. And, and it's a troubled bureaucracy that, that has right. many problems. And we need somebody who can actually take control of it. Um, and and how many, how many I'm thinking... Most of my lifetime, we hear all the stories about saying that um, it needs to be reformed, it needs to change, and we just don't seem to be able to do it. Right, and and here's here's a gentleman with these, these kinds of of issues that that I mean, if there's he, he has denied all of them, um, but there certainly but, seems but there's, to be. But there's good grounds to even even if he's all those gr- allegations are false, there are good grounds to ask that he may just not have the administrative skills to do this job. 
All right. Well, listen, uh, obviously he is withdrawn from that. Uh, listen, we do have to take a break for weather. Uh, certainly extraordinary developments, uh, really something that I think people could not have foreseen even, even if couple of months ago uh, in North with North and South Korea, the leaders shaking hands, each leader stepping over dramatically into although albeit briefly into the other country. Uh, we're going to talk about that after this break and after we give you some weather. 55 degrees, 837 in the Twin Cities. Esme Murphy with you until just before nine, along with Professor David Schultz. Uh, studio producer, Shaletta Brundage. Uh, David Schultz, your thoughts about this remarkable moment when the leaders of South Korea and North Korea came together, shook hands, and each briefly stepped ever so slightly into the other's country. Uh, certainly something that a lot of people thought would not happen in their lifetimes. I was going to say, this reminds me of two other incidents in my lifetime, one or maybe three, but at least two. One is the election of Nelson Mandela as president of South Africa and the fall of the Berlin Wall. If you had taken us back to like like the late 80s or middle 80s, I would have thought this, the Cold War is never going to end. Mandela is going to die in prison, and it happened. And when you think about North Korea, um, in some sense... Some of this is, is, is almost envisionable. And what I mean by that, it's a regime that's probably the last totally isolated regime in the world. Economically, it, is, um, it, it, it really needs to modernize. It's very poor. And perhaps we could almost sort of see it coming much in the same way. Now when we look back also about the fall of the Soviet Union, we look back and realize in the 70s and 80s, its economy was unsustainable, and that may be the same here. It may be the same for North Korea at having to make a move. And after, what, 70 years, literally, what, 70 years, over 70 years, um, um, what the North and South Korea divided, um, maybe the forces are finally coming together that they, they, they need to figure out how to work together. Now, the question, of course, many people are going to say is that is Trump responsible for this or not? It's too soon to tell. There may be other dynamics going on um, by North Korea, with South Korea, uh, but, but there's no question this potentially, and we're still not there yet, potentially is, is one of the biggest news items um, politically for the world in a long time. And, and you know, uh, President Trump and certainly uh, his supporters and even some of his critics say he does by signaling that he would be willing to meet with the North Korean leader, perhaps open the door, help the door open. Uh, it, it's complicated by the fact that he has uh, had obviously his political sparring with Kim Jong-un, calling him, I believe, Little Rocket Man, mm-hmm. uh, but then calling him honorable this week. Uh, it, it does appear that there's going to be some kind of a summit perhaps with the president here. Uh, is this something, and the president obviously is taking credit for it, uh, but is he not in some ways responsible for the thawing, or is it just a case of Kim Jong-un uh, desperate for a change in his status as sort of an outlaw nation? And both of them are reasonable hypotheses or, or theories to look at here, and it's it could be a little bit of both on this. Um, I, and, and so for, depending on whether you're Trump supporter or opponent, um, it, it 
we get different answers, but I suspect it's a little bit of both, and the Trump administration might deserve a little bit of credit because the, the and Obama should get a lot of credit too, is the increasing the ratcheting up of the sanctions, you know, from the Obama era, you know, into Trump era, might have finally had the impact that it needs to have at this point in terms of, of choking off of, of resources, but also even China, I think, has grown frustrated with North Korea and has made some cutting off of, of some products and some trade there also. So it may just simply a case that, that South Korea, uh, or rather North Korea, out of its own needs of survival, um, is reaching out and trying to do something. Now, where this becomes interesting is that the more South Korea and North Korea you know, work out deals amongst themselves, let's say opening up trade, normalization of actions, that actually undermines... Um, some of the bargaining power that the Trump administration has, because the threat it was always using was was both a combination of war and economic sanctions to try to get North Korea to be able to change its behavior, um, perhaps you know go you know, denuclearize. And we may be something we may be seeing that what Kim, uh, Kim is doing here may be a brilliant move in terms of undercutting also the bargaining power that the United States has here. In, in terms of um the human rights record in North Korea, and, and it, this is difficult because we really don't know mm-hmm. what is happening in North Korea. We only have gotten these snippets of reports uh, from people who escape, but there are allegations of these sort of gulags, these prisons that hold people for their lives, uh, the brutality of the regime, uh, randomly killing people, even, even members of his own family for right. that matter, uh, widespread starvation uh, amongst the people there. Does that does does the president have to be very careful? Because it's not really clear that even at the highest levels of U.S. intelligence, that there's a clear picture of what's really happening in this country. Yeah, we really don't know. We we don't know in terms of the economy completely. Although we have guesses, we don't have really good intelligence regarding let us say, the scope of their military and nuclear facilities. There's a lot we, we do not know. I mean, many years ago, the United States, um, I believe it was under the Obama administration, was able to crack into some of their computer systems for the purposes of, of sort of causing some havoc with their emerging nuclear program. Um, North Korea responded by insulating their, their computer systems even more, so harder and harder for the United States to hack into it. So you're right. We, we don't have a lot of intelligence at this point to really sort of make assessments regarding what is really going on in that, in that country. Um, and that makes it difficult to, to, to assess, you know, what are the real motives or what's really going on in terms of these overtures here. Now, we do know a couple of things, you know, from the outside. I just want to come back here. I mean, we do know, for example, that, if, that the, the average height in life expectancy for a North Korean compared mm-hmm. to a South Korean is dramatically different. North Koreans are 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 visibly shorter, um, life expectancy shorter. So we know that the food shortages um, um, are, are significant out there. But beyond um, um, sort of some basic information out there, not, and clearly, obviously, even more than you know than you and I would know, um, the United States government largely doesn't have the kind of information to really figure out mm-hmm. what's going on with, 
with in terms of the motives here and, and what may be happening. And as we've seen several times over the years, Bush administration, Clinton administration, Obama administration, North Korea gave assurances that it was going to stop its nuclear program or other assurances only to find out that they didn't do it. And that could be the risk that Trump is running into here also, is that they may reach bargains um, and be deceived. Right. Um, and, and, you know, in terms of the, the condition of the North Korean people, uh, in terms of how they are living, how they are surviving, uh, there was a, a North Korean soldier that escaped who was patrolling the DMZ. So he was right on the front lines and just walked across that, that you know, line where we saw the presidency joining hands there. And they actually, um, I heard an expert, I believe was, you know, talking to Chad Hartman earlier this week, but when, when they looked at sort of what was, you know, the, the man's health problems, he had um, undigested uh, kernels of, of corn, raw corn in his stomach, suggesting that, you know, here was a, a soldier who's sort of the best of the best, the elite, and he wasn't getting enough to eat. Mm-hmm. And one, one can only imagine, you know, what is going on with the rest of the people with these sanctions and, and the isolation in this country. So something to be seen, obviously, on there. So uh, let's take a quick break, uh, and then we'll have some final thoughts. After this, you're listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. It's 849 in the Twin Cities, Esme Murphy, along with Professor David Schultz. We were chatting in the break, and you reminded me, and it's it's almost hard to believe, especially with kind of the crazy weather we've we've been having, that it's almost May, which means the legislative session is about to end. And there's an awful lot that needs to be done. Yeah, we've only got a few more weeks left, and there's an enormous amount of work to be done at this point, um, anywhere from, let's say, Let's just take the top three issues at this point. One of them is the session started. It was going to be the session all about addressing the issues of sexual harassment. And although there's some movement there, we still don't have that resolved. The second big issue is all about um, how and do we do a change in the Minnesota tax code to conform with federal law. And then the third issue is the bonding bill. Um, and then if I could throw a fourth in there, usually in these um, these even number of years, there's kind of supplemental budgets, you know, that are passed. And so, so look at those four there. Um, we are a long way from getting any of those done. And, and you know, they they say every year it's not going to come down <laughs> to that last day. Right. And obviously, it does. It does. Right, and and I wouldn't be, and I'm not completely surprised this year it's going to happen because it is an election year, and I think two sides have dug in. Um, I also think because of the fact that the governor last year had lied item vetoed the legislature's funding, um, and the and it was finally restored this year. I think Republicans are not in the most generous mood to cooperate with the governor and to really deny him um, an ability to do very much in his last year in office. Um, so, so we've got that playing out also, I think, in terms of affecting deliberations. So I, so I think at this point um, we're looking at not a situation where the government's going to shut down, so folks don't have to worry about that. Um, um, the, the regular biannual bet budget was passed last year. The government stays in business, but we could see things again such as the bonding bill just not happen or tax changes not happen. And if those tax changes don't happen, um, we may see an awful lot of people paying a lot more taxes. But even with the Republican bill that's being talked about now, uh, we have potentially a couple hundred thousand people 
who are going to still maybe pay more taxes um, as opposed to less with the changes being proposed. Right. And I did see one survey that I thought was really interesting, indicating that a majority of Americans actually have not seen an increase in their paycheck. That's right. Um, so, so I mean, that obviously depends on the individual. And I think a lot of these things remain to be sort of, you know, has to have to be shaken out. But they're going to have to do something, though. Um, they're going to have to because it's May 21st is three weeks from Monday. Right. Well, we, we assume they're going to do something. We, and when you say they have to do something, they, they, they have to, but how many times have we said in the past they have to get it done before the session ends, um, they have to get it done before the budget, budget year runs out, and they haven't done it. I mean, we're looking in the last half a dozen or 20 years, and I think we talked about this once, I think I calculated it last year, is that um, of all the, let's say, times that we've had um, special sessions, um, because they haven't been able to get the budget done, the vast majority of them have occurred since 1994, and we've had what three shutdowns or partial shutdowns, you know, in the last 20 years. We're not looking at a good track record now in terms of the legislature and the governor reaching agreement. Right. Another thing coming up here in just five weeks: uh, the nominating conventions for both parties. Uh, one in Duluth, uh, I think that's the Republicans. The Democrats are down in Rochester. Uh, for governor, it does look that Republicans probably are going to have a primary in August, a very competitive one. Uh, right now, it looks like it'll be Jeff Johnson against Governor Tim Pawlenty, unless Tim Pawlenty can pull out some miracle and get the nomination, which I think is almost impossible uh, because of, of the timing here. That's right, because he didn't enter the race until well after the start of the caucuses when delegates were already being wrapped up. And Jeff Johnson um, has 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 done a good job of working the caucuses and getting delegates, and so it's going to pit him playing the the role of of good Republican and getting delegates through the caucus and convention system versus Tim Pawlenty, who's coming in with what the money, um, and it will be all about whether or not the, the million dollars plus that he's already raised, plus who knows how much more between now and August, you know, how does that money play out in terms of an advantage versus. Again, Jeff Johnson having gone the more traditional route, and that's a really good question. And on the Democratic side, can Tim Walls win the nomination, do you think? That is a good question, because right now, Tim Walls, the support that he has is equal to roughly the support that Rebecca Otto and Aaron Murphy has. Um, Maybe he's got a little bit more, but to get to that 60% threshold so that he can avoid a primary... I don't think he has it yet, and I think you're going to see the strategy for Otto and for Murphy is to prevent him from getting that. And going to the primary. From going to the primary, because those primaries um, are very unpredictable, especially given the fact that they're, what, the first week of August. Second week in August. August I'm sorry, second week in August. And if we talked about before, there are several things that Minnesotans are thinking about the second week of August, and primaries, politics, and voting are usually not (laughs) those. All right, Wilson, David Schultz, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Anytime. Good evening to all. Absolutely. The one and only David Schultz. And please check out his blog, Schultz's Take. It's very, very good. I do want to let you know that uh, I will have Congressman Tim Walls will be on our show, our Sunday show, 
uh, tomorrow. Uh, that is uh, Sunday at 10.30 a.m. Also a guest at 10.30 a.m., Craig Blacklock, who is a renowned nature photographer who has done uh, an, written an extraordinary book. He actually took the pictures for it. Uh, former Vice President Walter Mondale written the foreword to it. It's a beautiful book about the Namakagan and the St. Croix River. All right, folks, keep it here. You are listening to News Radio 830 WCCO. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 